Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by BlackRock Health, providing patients with world-class clinical care and comfort, enabling swifter recoveries. But first this morning, I'm joined by a man known well to many. As RT's Europe editor, Tony Connolly has guided us so ably through Brexit, the war in Ukraine, and he's frequently seen and heard on our televisions and radios. From Derry, Tony has, however, a fascinating personal backstory about his grandfather, Galway man Michael Connolly, who ended up on the wrong side of history as a constable in the much-hated Royal Irish Constabulary. Well, in a new Hidden History documentary which will air on RT television tomorrow night, Tony digs deep into this incredibly tricky area of his family's past. And to tell us more, I'm joined now by Tony. Morning, Tony Connolly. Morning, Miriam. Listen, I loved it. It's a superb documentary. You start off the doc actually by talking about your own background. So will you remind people, you grew up in Derry, tell us a little about your own background. Yeah, so I grew up in Derry, Miriam, during the 1970s. So the troubles were very much in the background and sometimes in the foreground. And I would have seen myself as a nationalist. You know, Mm. I was not um, a Republican uh, per se, but, you know, I, I would have supported John Hume and the SDLP. And I was from a kind of an SDLP family. I, you know, I, I was aware that my grandfather had a particular journey from the Royal Irish Constabulary pre-partition and then that he had become uh, a member of the Royal Ulster Constabulary post-partition and that's essentially why I'm a northerner. If it hadn't been for partition and the War of Independence, <laughs> I, I'd be a Tipperary person possibly or <laughs> something like that. So, But, but he, the thing is, he died just a few months before I was born, so I never knew him and he wasn't talked about that much. Um, my, my father was the youngest of six kids so he was mentioned in passing and there, there was the odd photograph of him in uniform around the house. But that was really it. But I, there were a couple of stories that, you know, piqued my interest uh, over the years. And it was only when the, the whole controversy over the RIC blew up in 2020 about the commemoration that I thought... I, it's time I, I looked into his story and, you know, just using the skills that I have as a journalist and also, you know, guilty as charged. You know, I was because I'm, I have a profile at home in Ireland, I, I could contact historians and get a bit of a dig out and, and signposted in a few different directions. So that was how the whole thing started. It's so interesting. So tell us, so Michael Connolly, the grandfather you're talking about here, I think he's your dad's dad, isn't that correct? Tell us about your grandfather, where he grew up. Tell us a bit about him. So he was, yeah, Michael Connolly was born in 1887. Now, the census of 1901 has him as one of 13 children in the parish of Clonina, which is near Kilconnell, which is near Balnasloe. And his father... Uh, Matthew Connolly is down in the census as uh, a shepherd. And then by the time of the 1911 census, uh, there's only a handful of them left. Quite a few of his siblings emigrated to America. And he, what I found out, joined the RIC as a young recruit in 1908. I mean, the story of the family is very interesting because, you know, a lot of them, despite emigration and, and all the challenges of 
of the the 20th century enough of them were able to stay in the homestead and and some of them still live around there but he joined the RIC in 1908 and his first posting was Castle Gregory in County Kerry now that's where he met my grandmother Nora Flynn who was the daughter of John Flynn who was the local school teacher and as part of the research and making the documentary, we, we found a front page article in the Kerry Advocate in August 1915 describing their wedding. It had, the headline was Wedding Bells and there was a short little, you know, very poignant, very, very cute uh, pen picture of the, of, the, of the wedding. There wasn't a picture, I should say, but just a description of the bride, what she wore. And of course, the, the the article finished by saying that friends and family wished the newlywed Connollys uh, many years of connubial bliss uh, <laughs> as they headed off to Dublin by motor for their honeymoon. So, so th- that that was uh, you know one of the many discoveries I made uh, in doing the research. So I mean, he was probably very typical of an RIC recruit in that he came from. You know, probably rural poverty, you know, big family, Catholic family. Um, There were very few steady jobs open to that class of people at the time. uh, And that's where he set out in life. So remind people, Tony, as well, like for people listening, certainly younger people, they might know why the Royal Irish Constabulary has been so controversial in our history. Remind people of the RIC. So the Royal Irish Constabulary was founded, if you like, in 1836 by Robert Peel, who was an MP, a very famous MP because he's so much associated with the police. Uh, You you know, we we talk about Mm. Peelers, we talk about Bob Bobbies, that that was where that came from. He was an MP for Cashel and he helped establish legislation that provided for four provincial police forces around Ireland. And they, I suppose they were different in that there was a lot of agrarian violence, especially in County Tipperary, where he was from. There was still the threat in the 19th century of a French invasion. So they were a sort of a a quasi sort of gendarme, uh, more more of a military hue than in the UK. I mean, they they were armed. Uh, and they they were they got the royal prefix from Queen Victoria in 1867 because they had they had suppressed a Fenian uprising. They were also you know very negatively associated with the land war in that they were often drafted in if there was an eviction taking place. So you know they were largely hated at, at various stages during the 19th century. But by the time I think my grandfather joined in 1908, you know the land war had ended. There was a, a I suppose, a calm before the storm, if you like. And the the force had been, you know, a lot more domesticated and, and was part and parcel of the, you know, the fabric of society. So, I mean, according to one historian I spoke to, he would have been seen as, as quite a catch, you know, for, for young Nora Flynn and Castle Gregory, uh, you know, had a, had a good salary, would have had a pension and so on. Mm. Uh, but then, of course, all that changed with the Easter Rising, then the creation of uh, Sinn Féin clubs around the country, then the the executions, then the, the, the then the War of Independence, and you know at a very early stage in the War of Independence, the RIC were seen as like an obstacle to the, the march towards uh, revolutionary freedom. Um, so they were they became the enemy. They were seen as the eyes and ears of the British Crown forces, and then. You know, at a certain point in the War of Independence, when the force was becoming very demoralised, a lot had been killed. Then the British government sent in, of course, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, and they 
then really blackened the name of the police service in Ireland uh, because of the atrocities, the reprisals. And, you know, a lot of the RIC men uh, were horrified by the actions of the Black and Tans. Uh, some of them supported them. So there, I suppose there was a spectrum along which, you know, different RIC men uh, would have responded to what was going on around them. Some of them joined the IRA, some of them passed information to the IRA, some of them kept their heads down and hoped to just get through it. Uh, and some of them were, you know, fairly vindictively anti-Republican. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I don't know where my grandfather stood on that spectrum, except to say that there was an attempt uh, on his life in carrick on probably around 1920-21. And the only reason he wasn't shot was because he was he was in a shop and the people in the shop said, you're not going to kill him in front of your son. He was with mm-hmm. his four-year-old son, Matt, who's obviously my uncle. And so he essentially survived that. But then when the RIC disbanded, we also uncovered uh, documents to show that he had received compensation from the British government for, uh, quote, forced sale of furniture, so that shows that he had to leave in a hurry um, and he, he went with his wife, my grandmother, and three children to England, stuck it out there for a few months, um, but then discovered that he could get a job with the new fledgling Royal Ulster Constabulary uh, north of the border. So that's where he spent, the sort of, I suppose, the second half of his life and career. And then we'll go back to obviously him ending up in the North, Tony, and you ending up then as a northerner. But on marrying, I suppose, he was transferred to Carrick and Shore. And that was very difficult, wasn't it? And a very different experience at that time than when he'd been in Castle Gregory. Yeah, I mean, I suppose why I was really touched by the the article in the Kerry Advocate was that, you know, there was this sense of a new beginning for this young married couple setting off uh, Mm. to Dublin for their honeymoon. And, you know, it was August 1915. Nobody really knew what was coming down the tracks. And of course, then in in 1916, you had the Easter Rising. And that's when, so he he went to Carrick and Shure. He couldn't stay in Castle Gregory because the rules at the time were that if if you married a local woman, you had to move to another part of the country. So he was posted to Carrick and Shure. And of course, South Tipperary, was a fairly hot area during the War of Independence. Now, the first thing that notable that happened in there, as far as the records show, is is that he was involved in helping to pull a family from a burning building on Carrick and Shure Main Street. And for that, he received two medals, in fact, from... There were very prestigious medals at the mm-hmm. time. But, but one of his colleagues, uh, a man called Patrick O'Leary, who was also from Kerry, and he also received a medal, he was shot dead on the bridge in Carrick and Shure during the War of Independence, just, you know, a few short years mm-hmm. later. Another story that I had heard from my aunt Mary in Toronto was that my grandfather was somehow drafted into the Easter Rising um, and then heard that his daughter was ill, had had to end up walking back to Carrick and Shure, uh, and, but was too late. She had died by the time he got there. Now, I, I couldn't find any record of that, but what we did find was a death certificate for an Eileen Connolly um, from Carrick and Shure. Father was Michael Connolly, but it was December 1917, so it couldn't. So it was obviously something mm. was lost in translation. Uh, so she was called Eileen. Now the, it was, it's very sad that the death certificate said that her age at birth was uh, 30 minutes. So she obviously died mm. shortly after birth. Uh, so so that was you know so suddenly 
you know, from a small seaside town of, of Castle Gregory, he was pitched into a catalogue of very dramatic uh, episodes in his life. And that's before even the, the War of Independence uh, kicked off. And then, of course, there was a boycott handed down by the IRA and later confirmed by the Dáil against all RIC men and their families. So uh, we, we uncovered something in the documentary to show that he was actually refused a shirt in a shop in Carrick on Shore. And that would, you know, that would have been like really quite a a personal mm. affront to him, uh, you know, because he, he would have been, you know, of the same social religious background as those around him in, in, in that time and in that sort of that that milieu that he was in. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think what it really what really struck home for me was just just the divisions that set in among people who were the same, you know, uh, simply because of the job that he had. Did you find it an emotional journey, Tony? I mean, I, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, he won those awards for saving that family in the fire. And, and then there's this other moment where he actually, it looks like, stopped a member of the IRA being killed. Explain that story. Yeah, so part of the research took me to the Bureau of Military Archives in Cahalbrua Barracks in uh, Rough Mines and with the help of uh, the, the research staff there, Cécile Chemin, um, we, we were able to uncover one very compelling testimony from a member of the 3rd Tipperary Brigade in Carrickenshire at the time. He was an IRA uh, engineer called Seamus Babington and it turns out that he actually was the man who was working in the Draper store who refused my grandfather the shirt. Mm-hmm. And he writes in his testimony, now these testimonies were all recorded in the 1940s as an act of posterity by the Irish state, recording the reminiscences and the stories of, of IRA volunteers in the War of Independence. And he writes about the boycott and about a young constable from Galway called Constable Connolly coming into the shop and how this constable had tried to make be friends with him. They were about the same age. He was also from Kerry as well, like my grandmother, and it was working in his uncle's draper store. And he decides that he would refuse to sell my grandfather the shirt. So my grandfather angrily goes next door <laughs> and is refused there as well. So, But then later on, there's an encounter between Seamus Babington, who's on dispatches. He's trying to bring information to another IRA volunteer across the valleys. And he runs smack into a black and tans convoy. But behind the convoy, there's another lorry with RIC men in it. And he describes how he sees the young constable from Galway, Constable Connolly, who he'd uh, refused the shirt. And he says, whatever the young constable did, he owes his life to him because the black and tans had surrounded him at gunpoint, stripped him. He was sure that he was going to be plugged, as he says, but for the intervention, which he doesn't explain in in full terms, but Mm. because of the intervention somehow by my grandfather, he was spared. And to me, that was an incredibly powerful story. There's just a couple of paragraphs in the testimony, but it, you know, it, it's not none of us knew any of this, you know, growing up. This is all buried away in archives, which is, you know, the great importance of archives and the historical record. This was a, a huge opening in in me doing the documentary and trying to learn about my grandfather. And the fascinating thing, Tony, is you actually met that IRA man, Seamus Babington's son, Tomás, when you were making this stuff. That's, that's right. So, I mean, I'd, I'd been certainly, you know, like a, a lot of this research I was, I was doing, you know, my spare time 
in Brussels, you know, mm. between Brexit and Ukraine and so on. And, you know, I was just Googling uh, Carrick and Schur and any historical societies. But one of the researchers on the documentary did, did a bit of a Facebook search and found a Facebook group for Carrick and Schur. And she just stumbled upon a photograph taken in the 1950s of a group of people in Carrick and Schur, an old black and white photograph. And at the end of the group, there was a man named James Babington. So she contacted the person who had the photograph. And it turned out that Seamus Babington you know, the IRA man who had these encounters with my grandfather. He married at the age of 51 and he married a 19-year-old and then had 12 children. So one of his children, Thomas, is alive and well and living in Carrick and Shure. So I meet Thomas as part of the documentary uh, and that was an amazing experience because he still, as you'll see in the documentary, he still has strong views about what happened. Mm. And he sort of says, you know, the boycott against your grandfather, nothing personal. <laughs> but we saw him as a member of the occupying Crown forces. But it was incredible to meet him. And, you know, we juxtaposed the picture. I mean, his father was a very good looking man. And he had talked to his father quite a lot before he died and learned uh, a lot about his time and experiences with the IRA in South Tipperary during the War of Independence. And he knew his father's testimony that was in the Bureau of Military Archives back to front. So he was the perfect person to stumble. And this is all thanks to a, a Facebook group in carrick on that the researcher Fiona uh, stumbled on and, and it opened up this connection. So that was amazing. What did it mean to you, Tony, to meet Tomás? Seamus Babington's son, I suppose, because there's that lovely story you uncovered where it looked like, according to Seamus, your grandfather had actually saved his life. So was that an important meeting for you, for you to meet yeah, that man's it, son? It was, yeah. I mean, I, I I got a, you know, a very profound sense of what it must have been like, you know, on the ground, person to person mm. during the War of Independence when you clearly had an acknowledgement by Seamus Babington, and he writes about this in his testimony, that, you know, he felt sorry for the families of RIC men who were now suddenly facing this boycott. They, you know, the, the mothers couldn't get served in shops. Uh, you know, they couldn't buy stuff for their kids. And he acknowledges that they were from the same socioeconomic background as the members of the IRA. Their kids were in the same school. But suddenly, because of the historical tensions that had blown open, they were on the opposite side of a war. And, I th you know, that, that really sort of struck home for me. And just, you know, I suppose as well, like this is all so long ago. This is like over 100 years ago. You know, Google will only get you so far uh, in, mm. in trying to understand <laughs> this. And, you know, uncovering these uh, archives was, was, just, uh, was just amazing. Now, obviously, it's your documentary, but if you don't mind me saying, the star of the show, I think, is your father, Tim, who you interview in it, who is obviously your grandfather's son. How did he feel about, first of all, you making this documentary? Well, he was kind of, uh, he was very supportive. And, you know, initially, I, I like when the controversy over the commemoration of the RIC blew up, I mean, I, initially, I thought 
that I, you know, I'd make a few inquiries and just p patch a few family stories together and, and write a piece for the RT website. But actually, the more I uncovered, the more I thought, you know, God, maybe there'd be a documentary in this. And that, that's how it all came about. So my father was the first person we interviewed in Derry at home. And it was, yeah, it was, it was great because it was home in the kitchen that I grew up in. You know, it was, it was quite an unusual thing for me to be interviewing my own father. But I, I thought he was lovely. I mean, I, I wasn't sure how he would take to it, but I, I had been pressing him for information in the months prior. Just, you know, just can you tell me more stories about mm. what it was like growing up in Larne, in County Antrim? Like, you know, the, like the, the story, it's, it's, it's not contained in the documentary, but, you know, I, like my, my grandfather was was obviously a sergeant in the, the RIC in Larne, you know, which is a very, very loyalist town and there was a lot of anti-Catholic agitation. So he had to walk a very fine line as a Catholic policeman, uh, as a figure of authority um, who instinctively wanted to protect his kids. Now, I mean, there were times where he had to be drafted in when, when uh, on First Communion Day when his daughter, my Aunt Mary, was dressed up in her school, her, her communion outfit and they would be stoned by, by loyalist youths in Larne going to the church. And then there were people going to get the boat to Dublin for the uh, Eucharistic Congress in mm -hmm. 1932, I think it was. And there was a boat that went from Larne to Dublin for that. And they, people were stoned uh, getting on the boat. And my grandfather would have been drafted in to protect them but at the same time, he, he had to make sure he was hanging the Union Jack outside the house, outside my father's bedroom uh, during the 12th fortnight, as they call it, in, in July um, every year. And the story is told that my father came home one day from school and in a fit of nationalist peak, he, he pulled the, 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 the Union flag in, ripped it up and put it under the bed. And my grandfather saw it and didn't say a word. And from the next year on, there was no flag flying from, from the house. So, so these were stories that my my father was was asked to kind of recall, and I, you know, I, I, he he does a great job, and I must say, I was I was just hugely proud of him in the interview and how composed he was and how you know warm uh, about his father. You know, like like he was one of six kids. He was the youngest of six children. Three were born in Carrick on Shore prior to the partition, mm. and three were born then north of the border in uh, Armoy, County Antrim, and then, and then Larne. So the, I suppose, if you like, the family was just kind of cut down the middle by partition. You know, my father, I, I think he, he acknowledges that it was tough for his, his father in, in that situation. He, I think he kind of regrets he didn't talk to him more about the War of Independence and about his life. But he, he said he was, you know, he was a fairly... He was a bit remote sometimes, a bit unapproachable in those matters. But according to my Auntie Mary, he was a great singer, and, you know, because he, when he was in Castle Gregory, he, he formed a band. He played the accordion and he was a singer. That's where you get um, it, Tony. The, well, possibly. I mean, who knows? <laughs> uh, uh, but um, so, so, you know, when pressed, he would sing at Christmas time and he would sing um, The Fields of Athen Rye and She Moved Through the Fair and The West's Awake. I mean, these were you know, romantic sort of Irish nationalist ballads. And there he was, you know, as a sort of hounded out of the of the new free state, you know, you know, a, a target of assassination in Carrick and Shure, finding himself, you know, some years later in Larne. His family are about him, you know, six kids. They've all survived. And, and he sings these Irish romantic ballads, you know, when pressed. But, I, you know, I, I would love to have known what did he what did he think? What did he see himself as? Was he a policeman or was he 
a, a defender of the empire. I mean, the, one of the reasons why the RIC insisted, the rank and file insisted on disbanding was because they regarded themselves as an imperial police force and they, they, they did not want to be drafted en masse into the new civic guard. So, so, so I mean, I, I, I'll never know, obviously, what was in his head you know, all these years. You know. But, you know, what's clear, I suppose, Tony, as we come to the end of the day is he didn't have an easy life, your granddad. Like after years of being targeted as a member in the Republic of the British Crown Forces during the War of Independence, in Larne, as you said, he was branded almost an IRA man being a Catholic from Galway. So every which way he had a tough time, your grandfather. Yeah, he did. There was graffiti um, outside the barracks, the RUC barracks in Larne, saying Sergeant Connolly is an IRA man. Now, according to my Auntie Mary, I, I talked to her by Skype over the phone, over, over Skype from Toronto last year. She's she's 98 and, you know, in f- full command of her faculties and, and memories. Uh, she, wow. She's fantastic. And she said, you know, that, that like that graffiti was somebody would have had to get a ladder to put it up. It was really up high on this wall big white uh, letters, Sergeant Connolly is an IRA man. Now, he was, one of his duties in Larne was um, was crowd control on match day at Inver Park. And he was there with a walking stick, you know, and he wouldn't take any, uh, he, he wouldn't take any nonsense from uh, rowdy people. So he obviously had a reputation for being a, a tough character. And again, I think he felt he had to be to fit in with the, the RUC and you know, Lauren was a very Presbyterian town. Mm-hmm. But yet, you know, my Auntie Mary says that he would make sure that every Saturday night all the shoes of the kids were polished for going to Mass the next morning. Oh, Tony. Anyways, I'll let you go. Watching the whole documentary, it's a superb watch, Tony, but especially watching you interviewing your father. I've watched you interview a lot of people down the decades, Tony. But the love you show in your face as you interview your dad is something to behold. Thanks, Miriam. It's good to hear. Beautiful. So tomorrow night, your documentary, Tony Connolly, A Hidden History on RT1 Television and the RT Player at 9.35. It's a beautiful film, Tony. Congratulations and well done. Thanks very much. I want to bring in just very quickly some reaction, loads of reaction to Tony Connolly. Wonderful interview. I could listen to Tony Connolly all day talking about anything. Looking forward to the TV programme. Thank you. Another says, what a fascinating story and how easy it is to listen to him. I look forward to watching Tony's full documentary. Another says, great interview with Tony. His poor grandfather ending up in Larne of all places. Who knows, his grandfather could well have encountered my grandfather who was there in Larne at the same time. And finally, Harry McGee of the Irish Times says, extraordinary interview with Tony in his RUC, RIC grandfather. Funny enough, in another life, Tony could have hurled for Galway. There you go, Tony.